0: Testing, one, two, right. Morning, everyone. Are we all doing well? Are we all excited about having a deeper relationship with God? Okay. Are we all excited about the fact that I'm here to help us have a deeper relationship with God? Yeah, okay. I've got a lot to live up to now, don't I? So... Over the last couple of weeks we've talked about the Gospels and the message of the Gospels and how that... I just feel a little disarrayed up here. Does it look alright from the front? Online? Good, I won't worry about it. Um, And we've talked about how the Gospels are not only the easiest parts probably of the Bible to read but they also contain some of the most interesting ways of discussing Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ with us and the big problem I think is who here is willing to admit that reading is not their thing that they struggle to read and so that the idea that having to read the Gospels even if it brings me closer to God is going to be a big job something that I'm not going to take too naturally when I'm up here speaking about that your heart plummets doesn't it you think He's, he's, just, he's giving me more work to do. And so I want to actually, this morning, change your mind. Not to, well, we're going to pray later. If you're the sort of sort of person who struggles to read, I'm going to, I'm going to pray that that curse is banished from your life. Um, but also, I think part, part of reading is, we look at reading in a linear fashion. Um, people who don't like to read pick up a book, read the first page, and their first thought is, how long is it going to take me to get to the end? Whereas those of us who love to read would prefer it not to end because we're enjoying meandering along and and finding out what's happening. Um, But the Gospels are actually written, not with the idea of getting you from A to B to finish the things, but to actually bring you into a network of the knowledge that we find in the Hebrew scriptures that have been brought into the life of Jesus, and the disciples are actually trying to tie in Jesus with the rest of the history of the Jewish scriptures. And they, they do that by using hooks of different sorts and persuasions in different ways to actually try and get us interested. But sometimes I think we don't, we don't get that because we don't know they're doing it. And so this morning I'm here to talk about the fact that the Gospels actually contain hugely outrageous claims. And they, their claims are all about Jesus. And it's easy, I think, especially as modern Christians, for us to think that the information is the, in the Bible is there to help us live a better life. It's there to, there to teach us how to live. And after all, there are obvious signs for us to follow. Jesus says to love our neighbours. So, so we should. Uh, Jesus says, bless people who hurt you. Well, okay, maybe we should, we should do that too. But there's actually more to the Gospels than mere moral wisdom. Every story in the Gospel is making a claim about the identity of Jesus. Not every story is trying to give you a life application. So if the Gospels aren't merely trying to inform us about a, a, a new moral ethic, what are they actually trying to tell us? And so we, ta- who t- we take it for granted, spoiler alert here, that Jesus dies. You've all read that far. And, and so... The fact that he does makes us feel, okay, well, obviously the Gospels are going to actually lead to that point uh, of Jesus' death. But it's actually not quite as obvious as we might make out. Because after all, who's ever read a biography? Who's ever read one that, where the the main character doesn't die in the end? Uh, these days, most people are writing their own autobiographies at 16. You sort of think, you know, how much, how much can you write? Um, but... It, the death of a character or the death of the person in the, in the biography is only important if that death is important. And so even, even what we call the Gnostic Gospels, which are uh, other Gospels written about Jesus, they don't refer to Jesus' death and resurrection at all. Uh, so the inclusion of this part of Jesus' story is actually a ve- part of a very, very careful design. So the Gospel writers are tying Jesus' story into the fulfilment of the Hebrew Scriptures storyline, which is the story of Israel but also of all humanity. And then all of them are saying that this story leads up to the moment that this Jewish miracle worker gets executed. And it's a simple point, but it's actually their main point. So let's finish this series by looking at four unique characteristics of the Gospels that will help us become Gospel Readers 2.0. The first one we looked at last week, who can remember what that was? No, trick question, nobody remembers. It's the constant use of the Old Testament in the gospel and we saw four ways that the gospel authors use to actually connect the Old Testament and the New Testament and the first one the first one we all love it's quotes because if, if, if you quote the Old Testament I mean in Mark 1 verse 1 says as it is written in Isaiah the prophet so who knows that, that that's that's a clue it's a very blatant one it, it basically is saying to us perhaps we should check out Isaiah and see what's happening uh, The the second way they do it is by allusion. It's not illusions, it's allusions, which is actually including the scripture but not the reference. John 1.1 says, In the beginning the word already existed, the word was with God and the word was God. Now he's referencing Genesis and Proverbs in there, but he doesn't specifically mention them because his first century audience doesn't need it. And if I stand here and say, I'll be back, you'll know, What I'm referring to, I could say, uh, I'll be back from the movie Terminator, but most of you are thinking, well, you don't need to tell us that. It's obvious. Uh, Mind you, you can get caught with that. Who knows what E.T. says when uh, he wants to leave the planet? E.T. phone home. He doesn't. Elliot, the little boy, says E.T. phone home, but E.T. says E.T. home phone. So you've got to be careful with these. (laughs) We don't always remember exactly what we see. Anyway, unrelated to the Bible, unless you can find ET in there. Um, So the third thing is design patterns. And this is where the authors use people, places, and and periods of time to actually connect us with the the Scripture, uh, with the Old Testament, but doesn't actually put a, a reference or quote the Scripture necessarily. And we found that in Luke Uh, chapter 1 verse 5 and we hear hear there about the Jewish priest named Zechariah he was a member of the priestly order of Abijah his wife Elizabeth was also from the priestly line of Aaron they were righteous in God's eyes careful to obey obey his commandments and regulations and they had no children because Elizabeth was unable to conceive and they were both old and so most of us who have read the Bible realize that this is reflecting Old Testament characters we've read about there's Noah in there, there's Sarah and Abraham. Um, there's the whole idea that they were old and they had no children. and We've seen this story before. And so they're, they're sort of design patterns. Matthew 4, chapter 1, uh, talks about Jesus being led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil for 40 days and 40 nights. And he became very hungry. Now, that mirrors a little story we know about in the Old Testament where the Israelites wandered in the desert for 40 years. And they were hungry, and so God provided manna for that. And so there's all these hooks that are actually patterns that are repeated in the Bible. And the fourth thing is selectivity. They only actually took certain stories of Jesus to tell us. And we know this because they they tell us this. Luke 1 verse 1 says, Many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. John 21-25 is even more blatant. It says, Jesus also did many other things. If they were all written down, I suppose the whole world could not contain the books that would be written. Now, I think John's delved into the era of hyperbole here. Um, pretty sure that we, we could probably fit everything in. If we, we could probably fit a whole video of his whole life in there uh, these days. But, but the important thing is, that, and I don't know whether you've considered this, is there are lots of things that Jesus did that we actually have no idea about. There are huge gaps in the story of Jesus' life that we just do not have access to. And this is actually sort of important because we have to realise that there's there's been a selection process that's gone on here. Uh, And this is used by the writers to advance the second unique aspect of the Gospels. And that is that every single Gospel account makes the claim that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, very occasionally, the authors will make that claim plainly and directly. John 20, verse 30, says, The disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. Can't get much plainer than that. The first sentence of Mark says, this is the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. And Mark is, Mark is making a claim here. Not everybody believes that. But he does, and he wants you to believe it. We would call those direct claims. But most of the time, the Gospels are making their claims about Jesus indirectly. Every story is advancing a claim about Jesus that you're meant to wrestle with and reckon with as a reader. Every story is advancing a claim about Jesus that is not put in there for their pleasure. There is absolutely no phrase, no sentence, no description in the Bible. It's put in there just for historical interest. There's none of it. Oh, by the way, it was raining that day. Just thought I'd let you know. That Everything in there is actually written for a purpose. And that purpose is to persuade you. And each of the authors has a different persuasion strategy. Now, we all use indirect communication on a daily basis. It can range from subtle signals that people who know each other intimately do on a on a daily basis, with no uh, no verbal sort of, Um, no verbal cues whatsoever, (laughs) or it can range to passive-aggressive behaviour. Who's ever been somewhere and they've heard somebody say something like, "Oh, I see the toilet rolls magically on backwards again." they're not actually making observation they're actually making accusation and what they really want to say is who is the silly ratbag who put the toilet paper on the wrong way again but they don't they just use indirect communication and say oh look the toilet rolls on backwards Um, they don't there's none of that in the in the bible not about toilet rolls anyway Um, and so the gospels use indirect communication in a variety of ways the first is to tell stories about what Jesus does. There's a lot of narrative about Jesus performing signs and wonders, specifically acts of healing and restoration for lots of hurting people. And you might say, well, that's, that's just what happened. And while that's true, remember, it's not everything that's ha- that happened. For example, there are no demons being cast out in the Gospel of John. Not one. If we have the Gospel of John and only the Gospel of John, we'd never know that Jesus cast out demons. But in Matthew, Mark and Luke, it's like it's every other story. So there's a, that's a great example of their selectivity. They don't have to tell you everything and they often don't. The wonder-working healer who performs acts of deliverance and healing, especially for the poor and hurting, is a major, major part of the portrait of Jesus that the Gospels are trying to get to us. The second example of indirect communication is Jesus' teaching. If you have one of those Bibles that's got Jesus' words in red, you'll notice there are huge slabs of red in the Gospels. And this is intentional because the Gospel authors want to introduce you to the world of Jesus' teaching. They want to recreate for you what it would be like to sit and listen to Jesus and to hear his teaching. They want to recreate for you what it's like to hear his sayings, to hear his parables And so in in, in the Gospels, Jesus speaks for himself. The third thing they do is they let other people tell us about Jesus. In story after story in the Gospels, the story or episode will conclude with people saying what they think about Jesus. And that's all part of this strategy of giving us a variety of communications. Could I just grab that bottle of water, please? And uh, so if if we just look through Matthew very quickly. The first person who talks about Jesus is his dad. Matthew 3.17, a voice from heaven said, this is my dearly beloved son who brings me great joy. And chapter 7, we discover that the crowds are amazed by his authority. And in chapter 8, the disciples actually ask, who is this man? Even the wind and waves obey him. And the demons at the end of chapter eight call him out as the son of God. The people of Nazareth doubt him in chapter 13, he's just the carpenter's son. A Gentile woman confesses him as Lord and son of David in chapter 15. Peter calls Jesus the Messiah in chapter 16. Caiaphas the high priest demands to know if he's the Messiah, the son of God in chapter 26. As does of course, Pilate, the Roman governor in chapter 27 who asks him, are you the king of the Jews? And finally we have the Roman centurion, and his cohort who are there at Jesus' side when he dies. In Matthew 27:54, we read, the Roman officer and the other soldiers at the crucifixion were terrified by the earthquake and all that had happened. And they said, this man truly was the son of God. And so we, there are all these communication strategies that the gospel authors use. They want to make claims about Jesus, but they almost never do it directly. They invite you into the narrative world so that you can meet Jesus and experience other people's experiences which then become instructive for us to understand who Jesus is. It actually forces us to come to our own conclusions. We, you have to work for it. And I know those people that I mentioned who like to read sort of worry that it, it's, it's work. But I encourage you, get with somebody who loves to read. Don't do it alone. But go through these things and look at what lies underneath some of the things we read in the Gospel. Because we have to imagine ourselves in the scene that we're reading about. And at the end of it, we have to say, well, I've seen what he said. I've seen what he did. I've seen how all these other people respond to him. What is my response going to be? And the third unique thing about the Gospels is that all four are building up to the moment of his execution and resurrection. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John all have the same narrative arc and they all from the earliest moments are moving us towards the anticipation of his death. The first, first chapter of John says the light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. And verse 11, he came to his own people and even them, they rejected it. And so we've got this, this conflict blooming. blooming? Brewing, that's the word I was looking for, thank you. Uh, And in Mark, after Jesus is baptised, he goes and heals that crippled man, remember, who gets lowered through the the roof of the the house. And uh, we've got there some of the religious teachers of religious law who were sitting there thought to themselves, what is he saying? This is blasphemy, only God can forgive sins. And so they're grumbling away already and they make their plans to kill him because of this so conflict is introduced early which makes us realise the whole purpose of the story is to lead us to the cross I don't know whether you've noticed this but the layout of the gospels actually leads us to this as well the gospel of Mark which is the shortest one has 16 chapters in it the first 10 are about three years about of Jesus life so we're trotting along at about three chapters a year and suddenly it comes to a screeching halt the last six chapters are about seven I'll get it right this time, seven days of Jesus' life. And all the other Gospels take a similar thing. So a lot of, a lot of the early parts of the Gospel are about Jesus' ministry life and then suddenly, a the large portion at the end, at least a third of each of the Gospels, actually talks about a mere seven days at the end of Jesus' life. And it's those seven days that lead up to his death and his resurrection. And all four Gospels, interesting enough, portray Jesus' crucifixion as a royal enthronement, sort of the enthronement of a king. And this is where you know, the God of Israel takes the throne of creation as he shames the power structures of our world for condemning the innocent. And without the resurrection, of course, the crucifixion is another sad story of another Jewish rebel getting killed. It would be just another affirmation of the narrative that violence is how we bring peace to this world. But with the resurrection, Jesus throws that story and that idea out completely. Wouldn't that be good in today's world situation? So clearly these four accounts of Jesus all come from a group of people, the apostles, who all believe that this key event gives meaning all the way back to his birth, but then also launches this new thing that God is doing. That we are a part of today, called the church. So, lastly, each gospel emphasises a unique portrait of Jesus, and, and I think this is this is a good place for us to go to to actually find your favourite gospel. It's, it's not who knows. It's not wrong to have a favourite because the gospel authors portray Jesus differently in different ways, and I think it's good for us to. Find a place in those, find one that you, you like to read that, that fits with your idea of who Jesus is or how Jesus has impacted your life or how indeed they actually tell the story of Jesus. Um, they actually use a particular set of unique themes that they want to emphasise to present this unique portrait of Jesus. So it's, ha- it's having not stereo but quadraphonic sound actually pumping into the story with each order, adjusting the, 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 the volume and the... Does anybody remember having a, a stereo set back in the 80s and 90s? And they had a graphic equaliser on them. And the, the, the status symbol was actually how many knobs your graphic equaliser had. Um, and people used to spend hours adjusting these things by tiny-minded amounts to try and get the balance of the music right. Uh, And this went on until about the year 2000 when suddenly everybody decided that the music sounded better if you didn't adjust it at all (laughs) and they were banished to the scrap heap of uh, um, stereo hell or wherever they went. Um, And so, for example, Matthew turns up the the volume on the Moses illusions. And design patterns and he adapts the wording of his gospel and he tweaks the arrangements to make this design pattern with Moses work his whole idea is to give us the idea that Jesus is actually what God had intended for Moses and so he tells the story of Moses to show that Jesus actually is a leader of the people who is actually better but in the same vein as Moses was and Matthew seems, sees the revelation of Jesus as the Messiah as this gradual reveal. You'll see spots throughout Matthew where suddenly people get it. The light bulb goes on. Um, but Mark, Mark waits until the last minute. And we can see this in some, some of the structures of their of their messages. A famous example is when Jesus calms the water. You remember this one? He walks out and water the boat and Peter gets up and says, let me try that as well. Um, and in In Matthew, in Matthew 14, when Jesus gets into the boat, it says they worshipped him saying, truly, you are the son of God. But in Mark's account, in Mark chapter 6, it says Jesus gets into the boat and they were completely stunned because they understood nothing about the miracle of the loaves and their hearts were hardened. You sort of think, what? How How did he come to that? Because... You see, Mark is into this theme of Jesus being constantly cryptic and doing a lot of weird stuff like the Old Testament prophets. He has all these puzzling sign backs, acts and nobody really gets who he is and he's forever telling everybody to be quiet about him. It's, it's all through Mark. And so the interesting thing is that in Mark's Gospel, the Roman centurion who stabs Jesus in the side is the first person to actually get who Jesus is. Because Mark holds it to the end. So it's a different way of telling the story. Luke is all about the salvation to the nations. It's basically the book of Isaiah, but a dramatised narrative version of the book. Sort of like Isaiah on steroids. And so he he, he actually has a lot of reference to that and, and wants to actually build that story into the life of Jesus. The Gospel of John is all about Yahweh. It's Israel's God has come to us in the person of the Son. There are hardly any ethical teachings in John's gospel besides love your neighbour and believe in Jesus. That's it. Matthew's got the Sermon on the Mount. We've got a whole string of of ethical teaching there. But John, no. Believe in Jesus, love your neighbour, no exorcisms. And so there's a huge amount of differences. John has taken the claim about Jesus' identity and made that the central organising feature of his story. He's also moved the conflict that gets Jesus executed that I talked about earlier right to the beginning his, his scene that angers the Pharisees so much that they decide to kill him is that where he storms into the temple and overturns the table kicks out the money lenders now where do you think that happens in the Gospel of John? chapter 2 it's much later in all the other Gospels he gets right to the meat of it he said and you know why? because his story is all about how Jesus is the new temple. And so, of course, this is a great story because where does Jesus go to knock over all these tables? To the temple. And so he's, he's actually changed the way that happens so that when he storms the, the temple and throws over the table, it actually lets him build a whole set of stories that link together that show that Jesus is the new and the true temple. And verse, chapter 2, verse 19, it says, All right. Jesus replied destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up and of course he's talking about himself but the Pharisees thought he was blaspheming about the temple of God and so his crucifixion was pretty much a foregone conclusion after that point point. and so John uses this to layer all this temple imagery in his gospel uh, and it all connects back to this particular story so who here it's slightly excited by the fact that the Gospels contain a lot of this stuff that you'd never thought of looking for. Anybody? Who, I mean, be on, who's intimidated by it? Who thinks far out, I just wanted to read them to find out what Jesus did, and here you are telling me there's all this stuff under the surface that I've gotta go and research, I need to go and look at the book of Isaiah, I don't understand this thing about the temple, where do I get that stuff from? Anybody feel a little overwhelmed by the thing? And that, that's natural. And so I think we need, to, we need to actually change our thinking about what the Gospels do for us. The Gospels are connecting Jesus' story to the Old Testament. They indirectly make their claims through Jesus' actions, through his words, and through other characters' perceptions of who he is. All of the Gospels lead to the cross and the resurrection as the climactic point where the meaning of Jesus is discovered. Each of the four has a unique portrait and arrangement and thematic emphasis. So, what's the takeaway? I think we need to have a change of how our minds view the gospel. I grew up, when I first came to church, with this, this feeling, this, this um, I guess, direction that I was steered in, which tells me that the gospel is a book of life application and in fact you can go to Koorong and you can buy a life application Bible and that's the main mode that many conservative Protestants actually read the Bible it's this lesson for my life approach and the, and the deeper, deep level of assumption here is that the Bible is like a moral handbook and each story is giving me a life application that I can apply to my life and who would like that because that's a far easier way to read, to read the gospel isn't it The problem with that is that's not what the gospel authors are actually trying to do. Every story is not trying to give you a life application. Every story is making a claim about the identity of Jesus. And they are building a case for that as they progress. So the question we should be asking when we finish reading each story, uh, each chapter or each episode of the gospels is what is the unique claim about Jesus being made from this story or this episode, or this chapter, because the uh, the gospel writers are like painters; they're adding you know, a bit more of the a, a mosaic of the oil painting to the portrait of Jesus as they go along, and it adds every every, every bit we read adds more oil to this canvas of this portrait, and we have to recognise that it's not about us; it's about him. And as we immerse ourselves in the gospel, we're actually being called, as we read, to make a decision about whether we're going to believe in him, trust in him, and follow him. How we go about that is up to us. But that is the central aim of every single one of those gospels. They are actually put there and made to tell us the story about Jesus in such a way that persuades us to make a decision. We cannot read the Gospels if we're reading them properly, and sit on the fence and say, "Oh, that wasn't a bad story. Jesus did some good stuff. He might be worth following." We actually have to stand there and read it and say, "Well, okay, they made all this stuff up. I don't believe a word of it." Or this stuff is so persuasive. It's so full of truth that I need in my life, that I have no choice but to accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Saviour. And we have that choice every day of our lives. And if you haven't ever made that choice, if you're online, sitting there in your lounge room or walking around with your latte or whatever you're doing, and you're thinking, well, I've never made that decision. I've never taken the gospel seriously enough to actually say, well, this is what I need to do. I want to give you an opportunity to do that right now. And if you're here today, in person, I want to give you that same opportunity. You may have done it before, but realise that you're not actually fully convinced or convicted about the, the Godhood of Jesus Christ, the Lordship that he should have in your life. Then we actually need to stand up, be real people, make a good decision, change our lives. If you're online... You can have that opportunity right now. There's one of our team who would love to talk to you about it. If you press the raise hand button in the chat, they will actually help you understand what sort of a decision you need to make, what the implications of that decision are and how to step forward into that decision that you've made. If you're here this morning and you want to make that decision, you want to talk about that decision, you want to work out how to move forward around that sort of decision, I'm going to be here at the front for 10 minutes or so at the end of the service I would love to talk to you about making that decision what it means for you how to actually take action how there may actually even be a life application in it for you as we make that decision but before we actually finish and I know I'm I'm cutting into our time a bit but I'd I'd love to pray for people before I close can I ask everybody to stand can I get George up here perhaps Because I've just vomited out a huge amount of information on all of you. Um, Hopefully it's the sweet breath of the the knowledge of God and not something that that stinks. Um, But I I recognise that it has the ability to excite people, to frustrate people, to actually depress people because... We're worried about what we need to do. How can we get revelation? How can we understand everything? Um, you, You may have thought that what I delivered was shallow and that you know all of that stuff. Congratulations. You may have thought, wow, this is just over the top. I have no way of ever understanding half of what you said. Or you may think, well, it's just too hard. It's irrelevant. Or you may be thinking, well, I don't know anything that you've said, but I really want to get into it. I don't don't know what everybody's thinking. But all I do know is that we're called to make a star to actually read these things. Uh, Brendan talked earlier about how the cross is vertical and horizontal and that the horizontal part is actually community. And we know that the first century readers didn't actually go into their closets and read. They didn't actually have um, copies of the New Testament um, on in books they might have had a few scrolls by the time that it had been moved around a bit but they actually sat together and discussed and read it themselves they actually got themselves around people who had knowledge of the old testament who didn't have to say oh, i'll be back from the terminator they just had to say oh, i'll be back and everybody said oh yes now we know what you're talking about and we don't have that advantage because we don't we we have tiktok and snapchat and facebook and uh, YouTube and all of those things to distract us uh, and movies and we know all the, the cultural things from movies we know you know use the force Luke um, I'm doing a lot of older movies I know it's dating me but um, these are things that 200 years in the future if you said that it's into a culture that they're probably not going to know what you, you're talking about movies what are movies We have these internal holograms that you just close your eyes and it beams onto your frontal cortex, I don't know. But I think the important thing about the Gospels is to have the desire to actually explore them. And whether you're afraid of that, whether you're excited by that, whether you're indifferent to that, whether you think it's hard work, whether you think it's going to be a pleasure or not, doesn't actually matter. God will meet you where you're at. But we actually have to take a stand and say, okay, I'm going to actually make an effort. I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to find one of the Gospels I really like. I'm going to work out what's being said to me. I'm going to ask people. I'm going to get together with people. I'm going to look at it up online. And if you look at it online, can I ask you, please don't just Google it. There is so much C-R-A-P out there that you can get yourself down a rabbit hole you just don't want to go down. Find a reputable... Um, Bible website program. Uh, ask people around you who's a good theologian. You know, if you, if you want to read N.T. Wright or um, Ben Worthington III, they're all, <laughs> sounds imposing, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, they're all great writers. N.T. Wright actually writes things as Tom Wright as well. And because Tom's a much friendlier name than N.T., um, he actually did that on purpose so that the Tom Wright books are a lot easier to read um, and not full of. Um, esoteric language um, but we, 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 we need to have a heart to do that so I just want to pray can, can you just all bow your heads and while I'm praying just clear your mind of everything but just ask God to give you a passion for the Gospels a passion to know Jesus more intimately more thoroughly to actually take hold of the claim that he is your Lord and Saviour and let the gospel show you how to work that out in your day-to-day life just be open to what God has for you and let him do the rest let him change your attitude towards reading let him take away the worry of how you interpret something just let your heart be full of that passion to read those gospels thank you Jesus that your Holy Spirit empowers and encourages us all. As we seek you through prayer, through community, and through your word, we thank you that our spirits are quickened, enlivened by the presence of your Holy Spirit. Teach us, change us, and inspire us to become Bible Readers 2.0. Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Brendan. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Chris, for that inspiring, in depth book review. You ever watch a book review, a movie review, and you're like, that was good.